you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest. And take From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. In the days after Charlottesville, three weekly news magazines ran shocking illustrations on their covers, tying the sitting American president to white supremacy. The Economist featured an image of Trump shouting into a white megaphone that looks unmistakably like a Klan hood. The New Yorker depicted Trump in a sailboat, his hand on the rudder blowing wind into the boat's triangular white sail. The billowing sail, which has two holes cut in it, resembles a Klan hood. Overseas, the German weekly Der Spiegel showed a figure in a suit with a signature red tie, his face hidden by, you guessed it, a Klan hood. A fourth weekly, Time magazine, didn't take on Trump directly, but played with similar themes. Its cover featured a figure in profile, but you can only see the top of this man's head and his black boots because he's cloaked in an American flag, which drapes dramatically from his outstretched arm, raised in a Nazi Sieg Heil salute. The last two of these illustrations, the ones featured on the covers of Time and Der Spiegel, were done by the same artist. Adele Rodriguez is a Cuban-born American illustrator, and he has emerged as one of the sharpest visual critics of Donald Trump's presidency. You have almost certainly seen his work, whether at a protest or on Twitter or just in line at the grocery store. Trump's orange face, always the same, featureless except for a screaming mouth melting into a puddle. Trump painting himself into an orange corner. Trump with arms aloft holding a bloody knife in one hand and the severed head of Lady Liberty in the other. Rodriguez's images pull no punches, and they remind us that these are extraordinary times that call for extraordinary artistic responses. I sat down with Adele Rodriguez to talk about fascism, communism, and the Irish Mafia. Adele Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you. Talk to me about why... Charlottesville was sort of this catalyzing moment for political magazine cover illustration. I had been working with this kind of imagery for like a year or two and sort of thinking like, maybe am I going too far with this stuff, with this KKK racism thing or neo-fascist or whatever. And then there it's like it finally, like it, it was right in front of us. As an artist, you're always sitting around, you have a lot of time on your hands thinking about what what's the worst that can happen. But when it finally happened and you see the the ticky torch parade, the 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 attack from the car, someone getting killed and all the injured, you know, um, it was way, way more and it, I think it shocked everyone because it's not it's not just a bunch of white supremacists, you know, uh, uh, marching is they're getting encouragement, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and you see that all the time from this president. They're getting encouragement. And you had you had the magazine covers responding to that. Getting a, a Nazi salute on the cover of Time magazine. <laughs> but it has to be a difficult and complicated time for that to actually get published. Because that goes through many, many people that have to go, okay, we're going to publish this. Yeah, I'm curious about that <laughs> process. Like, do you, how do you work? Do you come to your editors and you're like, hey, I have a concept no, I will, they kind of work differently. But mm-hmm. in that week, they both assigned me, like Time Magazine 
reached out to me and says, we want you to do something about Charlottesville. You know, we don't know what, but, you know, send us ideas. Mm -hmm. So I sent a lot of ideas and we talked back and forth. And the same with Der Spiegel later in the week. What I was trying to do about three years ago when I first started doing this kind of work is change the way that the media treats uh, the president <laughs> because it was this even-handed treatment, you know, both the both sides, both sides. <laughs> Good people on both sides. Yeah, we, we've got the Democrat have their point of view and the Republican have their point of view and we're going to present them as the media in a neutral way. So during the um, uh, the debates with Hillary Clinton, I put, put Hillary Clinton on one side debating a guy in a Klan hood on the other with a red tie. So that was two years before that Der Spiegel cover came out. But that was that's just me and my personal opinion. But I thought if I put this out there and I start putting it out there, the people that follow my work, which includes a lot of editors and art directors, people that I've worked with in the past, it's going to get kind of in their in their bloodstream. <laughs> They're going to think, well, maybe this would be this is the right way to treat this person. Right. And it was I was doing that for about a year until finally I got the first call from Time Magazine and <laughs> said, "Hey, we, we're watching what you're doing. <laughs> um, we want to." you know, work with something like that, something strong for our cover. And that was the first cover I did for time. So I think that, that y you don't wait, you know, if you're an individual and you're an artist, there are things you can do to try to affect how the media tries to cover something. I mean, I remember right after Trump was elected, the rallying cry again and again was, this is not normal. Right. We all have to remember this is not normal. Right. But you do get used to it, right? Like everything is relative. Yeah. That's the danger of, of, of this. And, and uh, you know, my, uh, my wife's fam family um, are from Prague and they were uh, killed at Auschwitz. So we, I've spent a lot of time talking to the survivors and, and people that left right before the Nazis came in. And for about five to eight years, her great-grandparents, they didn't want to leave. And they're like, they're not going to come here. This isn't going to happen. And then they, they they burned the synagogues. Well, that's it. You know, it's not going to go further than that. And none of them would leave. And then eventually the worst happened, you know. Mm -hmm. So what I learned from from that is as soon as you see something that is, that, that's fascist or has, has that kind of outlook, then you have to confront it right away mm -hmm. in a really direct way and uh, be outraged by it. It's what happened in Cuba, when I, where I grew up, which has a lot of influence in, in the way I think about dictatorships, is people just accept it and then they find themselves in a trap, basically. I'm reminded of a Dutch political cartoonist whose name escapes me, and even if I could remember it, I probably couldn't pronounce it. He was active during World War II, and he started putting out these political illustrations depicting Nazis as skeletons and drinking blood. Mm -hmm. And people were like, whoa, like, isn't this a little extreme? Right. But actually he, he was showing, no, no, this, these are extreme times and right. we need to depict it as such. The name of that Dutch political cartoonist, which, yes, I am probably about to mispronounce, is Louis Ramakers. And I also flubbed his intro. While he is famous for his drawings of anti-German propaganda, it was during World War I, not two. Now, during World War I, the Netherlands was officially neutral. But when Germany invaded Belgium in 1914, Ramakers felt it was unconscionable for Holland to continue its policy of neutrality in the face of this aggression. Ramakers drew political cartoons for a major Dutch newspaper, and he used his platform to try to persuade his countrymen to enter the war. One of his images shows a German soldier standing on the threshold of a door, saying, I come as a friend. 
Blocking his way is a Dutch woman, like wooden clogs, white cap with the little flippy wings and everything, holding a bayonet under her arm. She replies, oh yes, I've heard that from my Belgian sister. But that's tame compared to many of his other illustrations. Ramakers is technically a very good artist. His use of shading and shadow is particularly impressive, but he's even more skilled as an emotional manipulator. Whereas other political cartoonists of the time just used their pen to poke fun at politicians, often with high-concept visual metaphors, Ramakers went all in on depicting the horrors of war. One of his most famous images is titled, To Your Health, Civilization. Death, represented as a cloaked skeleton, gulps a goblet full of lurid red human blood. Civilization has provided him with a bumper crop of carnage. Ramakers also employs an uncomfortable but highly effective theme of sexual subjugation, where Gibson girl lookalikes represent German-occupied Belgium. An illustration titled Seduction features a woman on her knees, gagged and chained, her dress torn to expose a breast. A menacing German soldier points a gun at her and chucks her under the chin. Ain't I a lovable fellow? The caption reads. Ramakers was so good at stirring up public opinion that Dutch authorities tried to charge him with endangering the neutrality of Holland, and allegedly the German government placed a bounty on his head. Ramakers eventually fled to England, and while the Netherlands ultimately remained neutral throughout the war, Ramakers' images were circulated widely throughout the United States, where he is credited with helping to cement public support for the war effort. Theodore Roosevelt said of Ramakers, quote, his cartoons constitute the most powerful contribution made by neutrals to the cause of civilization in the World War. We have this tradition in the United States of free speech and free thought and this and that. But as soon as you 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 start killing people of another race or, or saying that your your race is greater than the other one, that that's that's where you draw the line, and you have to draw the line somewhere. Germany has a really good way of dealing with this stuff. Mm. Mm-hmm. They they've banned uh, swastikas. They've banned Nazi rallies. That's it. Some of your most famous recent covers have appeared under Spiegel and also Time Magazine. So I'm curious about if their editorial approach is different. You know, you mentioned that Germany has a really strong hard line on white supremacy. Do you feel like you can present Der Spiegel with? more controversial images or images that wouldn't fly in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. But it also depends on the editor. The editor that I was working with at the time at their Spiegel, Klaus, when I finally met him and we were talking, it was like talking to myself. Like we felt this same strong way about everything. So I was the image, he was the, the text. So it takes someone making that decision and defending it. And was he the editor on the Der Spiegel cover that depicts Trump holding a bloody knife in one yeah. hand and the severed head of mm-hmm. Lady Liberty in the other? Yeah, it was the same editor. Talk to me about the process behind that cover. What was the inspiration? And what was the back and forth like on that? The the Muslim ban was announced overnight. And um, there were people on their way to the United States, little kids, grandmothers that were stuck at the airport. And I became very angry and, and frustrated by this because... Um, I don't believe the United States should be in the business of dividing families. You know, that's what the Cuban government did to my family. We were split up and we're still split up. So when I saw that, that there were kids and all that split from their families, it angered me. So I created 
popped in my head, you know, the real extremist, the real, you know, uh, terrorist here in a way is, is Trump with what he's doing to families. He's terrorizing families. So I, uh, I had been working on images about ISIS about two years earlier. And, and, and one of the images that I had was an ISIS figure sort of um, beheading himself. So I literally just took that image from two years ago and put Trump's head on it and um, the Statue of Liberty on one hand and published it on my Twitter and, and, and Facebook feeds and all that. And then um, about three or four days later, the Spiegel called and they said, we, we saw what you did a few days ago. Is that available? Can we publish that? Yeah, and I was like, well, you guys really want to publish that image? Really? And they're like, yeah, we really like it. You know, we just, uh, I had him in a, in a, a, a terrorist tunic and he's like, why don't you change it to a suit? So I put a suit on, a little small change. They just picked up what I had already done. Makes your job easy. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, uh, it, it's, it's the most direct opinion piece that I've had published. That image really was gigantic uh, in many ways. It, it really reverberated and created a lot of TV segments and interviews on CNN for me and, and Spanish television and all sorts of things. Um, partly the, Im the image, and then when they started doing research, they realized, oh, I'm an immigrant too. Uh, I came from Cuba, and, and it just, the storyline became sort of David and Goliath kind of thing, where Trump is this big force, and this small cartoonist is making these images. You came over from mm -hmm. Cuba when you were nine as part of the Mariel boat lift, yeah, yeah. and your family in the United States chartered a boat to go and get you, right. but also on that boat were prisoners, right. and Castro sort of emptied prisons mm -hmm. and put them on boats to the United States. Right. As the day began, an estimated 3,600 boats were strung out between Key West and Cuba. Politicians from several states tonight are sharply criticizing President Carter's handling of the Cuban refugee problem. The governor of Texas, Bill Clements, says the president has literally opened the floodgates, placing no limitations on the number of Cubans entering the United States. Since last month, 25,000 refugees from Castro's Cuba have come to America. As they left Cuba, Castro called them escoria, which means scum. Fidel Castro himself publicly stated, I have flushed the toilets of Cuba on the United States. Y los cusanos, los privilegiados, los parásitos, y los hijos de los parásitos, que quieran enarbolar la bandera, vergonzosa del crimen y de la traición a la patria. Sepan que no se van a enfrentar con señoritos, sepan que se van a enfrentar con hombres. Once the Cubans get to the States, they find that the harassment continues. Many of those who have arrived in the States tell horror stories of being beaten by pro-Castro Cubans and secret police. For all of the decent, hard-working refugees who came here to make new lives, there were also the deadliest, most ruthless criminals that had ever been unleashed on any country in the world. Okay, so, so what was your dad locked up for in Cuba? First he was locked up for, for killing a cow in the backyard and feeding us. Cuba, that's like, um, 
that's an offense. That's that's a felony. The reason why he was locked up when uh, the Mario Boatlift opened up was uh, he sold a pair of pants in the street corner. He sold a pair of pants. So they gave him, I think it was six months. That became part of the narrative in the U.S., right? That Castro had sent all of these criminals and dangerous people, and he'd emptied the insane asylums right. and that they were coming to the United States. Mm-hmm. And that sounds very much echoed in the current rhetoric, right, about, like, right. rapists and murderers coming mm-hmm. across in the caravan or terrorists, right. you know, coming from these Muslim countries. And as a nine-year-old who was not a criminal or her murderer mm-hmm. who was coming over, how has that informed the way that you think about this right-wing rhetoric about immigration? Yeah, I think it, it it's one of the things that sets me off in, in, in many ways. I mean, the way I look at it is um, if you look at any any immigrant exodus, you, you look at the Italian exodus from, from, you know, from Italy back in the 20s or 30s, Yes, many Italians came here, brought food and all this. But they, what, what did they also create? The Italian mafia, the Irish, the same thing. They have the Irish mafia and all sorts of things. But those are romanticized, you know, in a weird way. I don't know why. Is it because they're white? Probably, <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> is it is that there's movies made about them, mm. Scorsese, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And it's sort of this like, like aura of that's what made America sort of, um, that was part of the fabric or whatever. And then... Then Hispanics or Latin Americans come here and in the, the Mariel Boatlift, and it's all about the the delinquents and the prisoners. There, there's a lot of strange sort of associations uh, with with migration and and who's coming and and why they're coming. And these people, they can br- bring so much to this country, but we're gonna be scared because there could be a possible terrorist in the group. No, that is not what really what you're scared of. You're scared of something else. You just don't want to say it. Right. You know. Right. You mentioned the Irish mafia. Mm-hmm. Boss Tweed, who is the head of Tammany Hall, the Irish mafia, said this of Thomas Nast's illustrations. I don't care a straw for your newspaper articles. My constituents can't read, but they can't help seeing them damn pictures. Mm-hmm. So in the heyday of political cartooning, it was often because audiences weren't literate. Right. And now we do have literate audiences, but maybe our attention spans are shorter. Do you think that we've sort of come full circle when it comes to the importance of representing um, the day's events in yeah. graphic form? If you look at my work, it is meant to be understood in about two seconds, you know, uh, especially magazine covers. I know people that are illiterate. They don't read. They, they, they can't read. They're farmers and people in 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 Cuba that they never went to school or whatever. So I, I, I can, I know how to communicate with people like that. And then I also, uh, gone to school here. And so I, I'm trying to create work that is understood from one side to the other. That's a successful image to me is, is when it can tap into everybody. I feel that journalists and writers sometimes are talking to other writers, you know, or in talking to editors. <laughs> I love reading, you know, a 10-page article in the Atlantic on you know, <laughs> whatever. But not many people are going to be doing that. My job is to get someone to to wake up and go, oh, I have to go read that article now. 
what what are they referring to on this magazine cover? Oh, let me open it and look inside. That's the point of magazine cover. It's something that ga- grabs your attention, doesn't give you the full story, but makes you want to read more. And that's, I, I believe, part of my responsibility as an illustrator is to um, get people to want to learn more about every topic. Um, it's the least I can do for, as part of my, my job as a citizen and an illustrator. And I think that that power of the image is what makes people perceive political cartooning as particularly dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like the New York Times recently did away with their daily political cartoon after the image that depicted Netanyahu as a guide dog and a blind President Trump uh, behind him. And that was viewed as largely anti-Semitic. But, you know, what strikes me is that if they had run like a written op-ed that people said that was an anti-Semitic op-ed, they wouldn't be like, well, we're never running op-eds again. Right, Instead, right. the New York Times decided to entirely <laughs> do away with daily political cartoons. I'm curious about your response to that. I think it's because it's something that editors can't control. You can go in there and talk to the writer and sort of massage it so it's a little bit less strident. But uh, cartoons are not not like that. You can you can try in, in the editing process, but it, you can't go you know publish it and go back and make a correction on a cartoon. Their mistake, I think, is that they just picked up a cartoon from some other place. Right, that was syndicated. Yeah, so the, don't get into business of that. Don't don't syndicate. Why don't you hire people and sort of like uh, learn who you're working with and what their point of view is? But that's you know, the, it's it's sometimes just easier to just go, hey, we're not going to do that anymore, right? And 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 move on. Art and illustrations create a gut level reaction in people, and um, you know, there's a lot of power in that. There are things that I've made that are uh, wrong or inappropriate, or and I, I go, uh, you know, or an idea that pops into my head, and I go, nope, not gonna, not gonna finish that one. How do you, how do you know? I mean, David Remnick, the <laughs> editor of the New Yorker, has said that the job of the magazine's cover artists is to go too far enough. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you know what that line <laughs> is? Uh, you know, there, there's, there's. So I won't do things that are um, that make fun of people unnecessarily. You know. There's like so many real issues that we're dealing with that things that are about how someone looks, I don't enjoy. I don't get any. And I think it's kind of rude to like make fun of people's uh, looks. It's um, low hanging fruit. Yeah. And um, sex is a, is, a, is a tricky one. So I, I, I don't, anything that makes me cringe, I go, uh, eh, I'm not going to do that. But you might get the idea and go, oh, wouldn't it be funny if. Whatever Trump and 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 Putin are kissing, and then I go, that's kind of wrong because it just sort of makes make, makes it inapp- that that being gay is inappropriate. Well, coming back to Charlottesville, <laughs> you said that you sit yeah. around thinking about the worst case scenario, right, right. and then the worst case scenario kind of did happen, right? And you had the opportunity to publish some of these images that I imagine perhaps you had been thinking about before like do you sit around thinking like oh man if this really terrible thing happens this is something yeah there's and there's things that i won't publish because it freaks me out that when i when i publish them then they happen (laughs) oh you're a cassandra so so then i'm like i'm not putting that up you know because it it, there was a time where i was doing something like three weeks later something would happen or he would do that and i'm like wow this is weird and i would do it as kind of like wouldn't it be funny if Situation. This is a great plot for a movie, maybe, <laughs> that you're like a cartoonist and whatever you draw comes to life. Yeah, yeah. I was feeling a little bit like that. Hi, is this Christy? 
It is. Can you hear me okay? Yes, perfect. Can I just get you to introduce yourself uh, with your name and whatever title you would like us to use? I'm Christy Puchko. I am the managing editor at Pajiba.com and a freelance film critic. Can you tell me about the plot of the film Cool World? It's basically about this guy named Jack Dees who uh, he believes that he created Cool World. He is a cartoonist and it's this like weird neo-noir world full of gross men and like detective types and this sexy femme fatale character called Hollywood, spelled W-O-U-L-D. It's supposed to be kind of a porny play on words. Holly pulls him into Cool World and he feels like he is a god in Cool World because he believes he's created all of it. But uh, in fact... Cool World existed before him, long before him, which is something that Frank Harris, who is a human detective who lives in Cool World, tells him. But that doesn't really fit like Jack's perception of himself or the world he thinks he's created. So he keeps rejecting that concept. Um, Ultimately, Holly decides she wants to be, quote unquote, real. Uh, And so she wants to be a human woman. And to do that, she has to have sex with a human man. But by doing that, it, it like kind of... I don't know if you watch Doctor Who, but it effectively would kind of break the universes and they would start to cross over. Uh, And it's basically like the world will end if these two worlds collide. But uh, Jack and Holly don't really care because they're kind of following what they want. Okay, so Gabriel Byrne is this cartoonist who believes that he has created a cartoon world that comes to life. Yeah, he he believes that he basically believes that he created something when it's more like he channeled something. So he thinks that he's like Old Testament God who has created this world, but actually he's more like a medium who is channeling a world that already exists. Yeah, I would say that's a good estimation. It sounds like this film might be somewhat problematic in its representation of women. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's (laughs) I mean, and it's like Kim Basinger at her like most basingery it's actually kind of funny because this was made like after who framed roger rabbit and hollywood compared to like jessica rabbit is actually kind of toned down that's kind of what i remember about this film from when i was a kid i was a child in the 90s was that i was allowed to watch who framed roger rabbit but i was not allowed to watch cool world because it was kind of the like smutty adult version of roger rabbit yeah ironically it's rated pg-13 which i think is why my parents thought it was okay for me to watch. I 100% should not have been allowed to watch Cool World. The director, Ralph Bakshi, what is he all about? This was not his first film. Mm -mm. Um, He was an animator for a really long time and a writer-director. He uh, made the first ever X-rated feature cartoon. It was called uh, Fritz the Cat. Uh, I think it made, yeah, it made 90 million. It was also considered like the most successful independent animated feature of all time for a very long time. And that was a rated X movie about a cat. Was Cool World sort of his, like, major studio break? I have a quote from an interview he did a few years, a while ago. I don't remember when year. It says, uh, when I went to Paramount, I wanted to do the first animated horror film. Basically, the original script I handed was a cartoonist, live action, who goes to bed with a cartoon girl. They create a girl, a bastardized child, half live and half real. Paramount bought the script, and when I was on location, they gave me a new script. Uh, Frank Manchusco Jr. had the script rewritten in secret. I had a huge fight with the guy and punched Manchusco Jr. in the mouth. 
but Manchusco's father ran Paramount Pictures, so I had nowhere to go. Wow. Okay, so, and then he has to go on and direct the film? Yeah. And, like, he actually has spoken beautifully at another interview I found about what his idea for the other one was supposed to be. It was supposed to be this idea about fathers and how, like, we might grow up being resenting our own fathers, but then you want to be a better father than your father is. But then how do you how you might repeat these cycles of neglect and abuse by just not being cognizant enough emotionally to deal? And then it must have been really brutal for him because the reviews of this film were very negative. Well, it sounds like the original script was trying to grapple with all these ideas about like toxic masculinity and cycles of familial dysfunction. And instead, what he ended up having to make is like, wouldn't it be cool to have sex with a super hot cartoon? Yeah, I mean, like, and it got dinged on a lot of levels, including the fact that it felt it like people said the plot doesn't make sense. And the plot doesn't if I've if I've made it sound like I make sense, I feel like I've done a disservice. So at this point, President Trump is kind of your muse, which is a Mm. weird way to think about (laughs) it. I actually, I I spend a lot of my time doing other things. Mm -hmm. You know, like I paint other things. I'm doing, uh, I'm doing a a book on Jimi Hendrix right now, uh, an illustrated book for children. Uh, I'm doing the memoir. I've got so many other projects, you know, going on. You're a fine artist. You're an illustrator. And your style, if you go to your website, your political illustrations Mm -hmm. aren't even up. Right. Your style and your fine art is more painterly, mm-hmm. you're using acrylics. Right. But the style that you use for cover illustrations is very graphic and pared down. And I'm curious about why you've developed that specific style. Um, I, I see illustrations and, and especially covers as something that needs to be read right away. It, that if you're looking online, that scroll that you do on Twitter, you're like, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh my God, you know, that first reaction, that's what I want. Will you describe what the Trump figure looks like for people who maybe haven't seen it? It's it's basically kind of a roundish orange head, a yelling mouth, uh, and then just yellow on top. Once it's established, you can then just stretch it and do other things, and people will just see this little screaming mouth and recognize. And that's the only facial feature. How did you arrive at the way that you depict Trump? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea for me from the start was to create a brand almost like Pepsi or Coke or whatever. And then um, once that brand sort of gets into people's mind, they can look past the visuals and just get to the idea really quickly. So when you see this brand of this orange face, you're like, okay, this is this is about Trump. And I can immediately, it, it wakes you up from the rest that's happening. Because you're going about your life or on Twitter or, or Facebook looking at pictures of your family, whatever. And then this thing pops up and like, okay, head, mind locks in on, this is about Trump. What's he saying about Trump? Oh, oh, that, okay. So part of the the idea to stop normalizing something, because that's one of the main concerns, is uh, you normalize something when you forget about it. But if you're constantly reminded of, of, of the problem and in a bright orange hue, you it doesn't get normalized. Bright orange is always a warning. Stay away from this thing or pay attention. And that was part of the idea of the branding. Create something that's bright orange that people associate with danger or caution or whatever. Once you've developed the brand, you can then destroy the brand by um, taking it into pieces, cutting it, slicing it, whatever. And then you still recognize what it is. I mean, we know that Trump is obsessed with his own image and the way in which the media covers him. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to assume that he has seen... 
Your yeah, progress. yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny that he, he, you know, he he sees, he retweets everything, but he will not touch the time covers that he's on. He hasn't tweeted. <laughs> he hasn't at shown you. it. It's sort of like this quiet thing. But yeah, of course, you know, I mean, someone, a friend of mine is an illustrator. He's, uh, he wrote me and he's like, I am so jealous of you because I, I do know that you know, every time one of these things comes out for about five seconds, Trump looks at it and is, is disappointed. <laughs> you, you're, you, you, you ha you're doing that to him. Like it's, it's the one power that I have yeah. that my friend did, doesn't have. Like, I'm so jealous. I want that. You get five minutes of his day <laughs> yeah, when he's just feeling like shit. That, yeah, you. yeah, you've just ruined his day. And I'm like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. But it's true because it's that, hey, you're on the cover of Time. Oh, God. You know, it's, it, my, my friend Tim O'Brien has also done some strong uh, Trump coverage for Time. But without us two kind of working on this stuff, it might have been a portrait of, of, um, of uh, Trump kind of looking serious or whatever. You know, Trump in profile, just his face, whatever. That stuff becomes very normalized. Like he's the president, you know, and he's in a cover of time. He would probably show that, you know, on in his office. Right. He's not going to show my work. You've made him ludicrous. Right, right. He's orange and he's a screaming mouth. Right, right, right. And yeah, you can't, you know, you can't massage that, you know. Right. And, then, and that, that's the other thing is he's excellent at, uh, twisting words so you can massage words or take quotes out of context and you know he can he can figure something out even now with with the with the impeachment stuff he's f figuring turning all these words around he's a master of, of wordsmithing and changing meanings you can't change meaning of an image it's, it's there that's it <laughs> so i'm curious about your take on what I see as one of the most iconic pieces of political illustration, both as somebody who teaches illustration and as a Cuban-American. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of um, Jim Fitzpatrick's image of, of Che, right. which is on college dorm rooms everywhere. Mm -hmm. What is it about what he did to that photo and creating this graphic illustration from it that is so powerful and that has, that has given Che a, a higher profile than he would have had Otherwise, um, yeah, I mean, actually, you know, it's taken from a photograph by Corda, who's a Cuban photographer. Uh, Corda shot the picture right. somewhere in Cuba, I think in Santa Clara, and then the Irish uh, artist sort of poster posterized it. It's very idyllic, you know. It's like Jim Morrison <laughs> of the Doors or something. It's this very young, fresh, idyllic image, but. At that time, you know, Che was really jailing homosexuals and uh, putting people in work camps and all sorts of things. So I don't, I, I, I don't really have the same associations with that image. Um, when I went to Ireland, someone offered me to, to meet the artist at Great. I'm like, no, I don't really want to. I don't really know what I'm going to say to him. Right. It's still, you know, the re the Cuban Revolution in general is seen as this sort of very idyllic thing by a lot of lefty people. Um, and uh, it's destroyed so many lives. And so I'm always in a funny spot where, I, you know, everybody just assumes I'm like online, you know, people that hate me just go, you lefty communist. I'm like, nope, I'm not. <laughs> not super uh, down with communists, yeah, yeah. actually. So they just, that's the weird thing is that people assume that if you believe one thing, then you're, you're, or you're against something, you're believing the other. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a weird, you know, extreme centrist. <laughs> the reason I'm doing this is because this what's happening here is reminding me of that you know 
and I was against Cuba and 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 communism for such a long time. I still am. And what's happening here is reminding me the way they the way insults are hurled at people at at Trump uh, events. It's the same insults that were hurled by um, by Cuban mobs, you know, state mobs against people that were leaving during the Mario Boatlift. What would be called scum, garbage, all these kinds of things. It's the same things that Trump writes on his Twitter feed are these things that that Castro would say. The the press is the enemy of the people is something that Castro said. You know, if any, like imagine now if someone did a very positive, beautiful image of Trump looking idyllically into the sky, what would you call that? Do you have a political illustrator, a historical political illustrator who you think is the greatest of all time or whose work you really look up to? Um, yeah, there's uh, there's a few, but I'd say Kathy Kollwitz was a uh, German uh, artist did a lot about poverty in the 1910s, 1920s. It was great. Um, uh, Emery Douglas, he did posters for the uh, Black Panther Party, did great work. Um, Leon Golub is a great painter that deals with politics. You know, is yeah. there a unifying theme among all of these political artists? I think, uh, you know, uh, the, the thing that I see and the thing that I talk about now a lot is risk, you know, taking risks. My father took a risk, you know, getting on a boat and with my mom and all of us because my mom didn't want to do it. <laughs> it's a risk to put your family on a boat. It's a risk to um, confront Hitler in the 1930s. It's a risk for Diego Rivera to paint the, you know, communist, to, to paint Lenin uh, at Rockefeller Center and that was torn down. But with risk comes reward, you know? What's, what's life worth living if you're not going to stand up for something? I'm not going to shut up. I didn't risk everything. I didn't even leave behind my family and all that stuff to come here and just shut up, you know, and 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 see things happening and and think what's going to happen to my career. Nope. I I I just do what I do and I uh, and I continue to do so. Thank you for not shutting up. Thank you. <laughs> Adele Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that is the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This is the seventh episode of Glitter and Doom. And if you like what you've heard so far, tell a friend about it. Maybe consider subscribing. We'd really appreciate it. Special thanks this week to Clay Jones. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al-Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hogaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 